Dunhuang. Situated along the ancient Silk Road, where fine arts and divine beliefs merged with the natural world. It's where the East and West interacted and where the world's largest Buddhist art gallery still fascinates and amazes people today. A place where stories of life and death, love and hatred, passion and desire, faith and sacrifice have been generated and told for 2,000 years. Buckle up for our podcast, Why We Love Dunhuang, the one and only podcast that can take you to the fantasy world of Dunhuang and beyond through our audio tour. Listen and subscribe for free on major podcast platforms. Why we love Dunhuang? You will have your answers. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. You're listening to Roundtable. I'm Lai Ming. In our special program, Li Yi, Yushun, and I are traveling in Wulan Chabu's central Inner Mongolia Autonomous Region to look at local examples of China's modernization. Wulan Chabu is many things. It's nicknamed China's yogurt capital, potato capital, and wind energy capital. The region's abundant solar and wind energy resources have encouraged development in the new energy sector. Today on Roundtable, we will share our first-hand observation from our trips to a solar power plant, a wind turbine manufacturer, and a research base on energy storage. Hopefully, this would shed some light on the state of development in China's pursuit of clean energy and carbon neutrality. We've also chronicled our trip in the video format and shared them over the internet. If you would like to see what we see, you can find us at Yingyu Chaoshenbo on WeChat, CGTN Radio on Twitter, and on Facebook page Learn Chinese, among others. Now on Roundtable, some basic info about Wulan Chapu in terms of clean energy. The city hosts one-tenth of China's viable wind fields. The average sunshine duration is 3,200 hours per year, is uniquely endowed to pursue, if not take the lead in, green energy development. And we do see a lot of businesses and good practices concentrated in the region. Let's begin with Yishun's visit mm. to a solar power plant. What was your finding there? Yeah, um, we interviewed a manager in this solar power plant, and he told us a single solar panel can produce about 1.5 kilowatt hours of electricity per day, but an entire power station there can generate over 200,000 kilowatt hours of electricity in one day. And an average household consumes around 2 to 3 kilowatt hours of electricity per day, which means it's a huge amount of electricity that's been generating. So, and somehow this project is related to poverty alleviation efforts in the region. Yes, the government initially provides poverty alleviation funds to construct power plants. And therefore, all the revenue generated by this power plant, after deducting operational costs, is returned to the villagers. And in 2021, a total of 73 million kilowatt hours of electricity was generated generating an income of 47 million yuan. That's about 6.5 million US dollars. And after covering the station's operating expenses, the entire income, averaging over 40 million yuan per village, benefited 106 villages. And these funds are primarily utilized for public welfare projects, village infrastructure, and improving living environments. And also, this initiative has brought sustainable and stable income growth to more than 18,000 residents. And from a wider range, according to Inner Mongolia's local officials, up to now, the total installed capacity of photovoltaic poverty alleviation projects in the region has reached 1.6 million kilowatts, with an average annual equipment utilization hours of around 2,000 hours, an annual electricity generation of 3.1 billion kilowatt hours, which is equivalent to reducing approximately 2.63 million tons of carbon dioxide emissions each year. Mm-hmm. So instead of doling out RMBs in cash to the people who have been well, confirmed as poverty-stricken, this project essentially is investing in the long term 
leveraging the advantage in solar resources and then building something that could last at least a decade or perhaps many decades more. And mm. then through the generation of solar power, not only is the project able to mitigate the carbon emission in the region, but also provide uh, somehow in some form the electricity for them to, for locals to carry out with the daily uh, business. Right. And then with the income coming uh, their way in terms of the power plant, the money is also distributed in the local region. Interesting. So did you get a chance to look at the solar panels there? I mean, have you had a chance to visit the uh, the power plant? Absolutely. When we were approaching that area, we can already see that it's like an ocean, you know, of of solar panels. And, mm. and there is a basically a tower and you can climb up to the power and um, see the bird eye view of this, basically a huge area with all of these solar panels and... Um, after the manager took us to a closer look at uh -huh. all of these solar panels, we can see that it's actually quite portable and it's changeable. The degree of this solar panels towards the sun is changeable. So, okay. you know, it's quite fascinating that you can generate a lot of energy from just these solar panels when they're just staying there. And it feels like, you know, the idea of people utilizing the natural resources and it's just like uh, what we've been talking about that people can, you know, digitalize your personal information and people right now can even utilize the sun ray that just come out of sun. Mm -hmm. So obviously we talk a lot about solar panels and uh, carbon neutrality on Roundtable regularly. And uh, what what's the your first impression when you really get your books on the ground and get a, your own personal view on this? Um. I think, first of all, this is a great combination between this, the natural resources and uh, human technology. And also, we are talking about all of these uh, solar power plants in Inner Mongolia, which is very suitable for generating solar power, right? And we learned that this voltaic power station was strategically located on a saline land, which is a land full of salt. Mm -hmm. um, originally a piece of basically wasteland because people cannot live on there and um, animals basically also cannot live on that. And uh, the construction of this solar power station transformed this area into a more valuable and productive site. And also this land enclosed by the power station has contributed to a, I think, better ecological balance in this region because we heard that from this manager that there are wild foxes and rabbits around this power station. And when people encounter them, they will not have any reactions. They will just peacefully coexist and do whatever they do. So, they're going to go like, huh, humans. Yeah, they, don't, they probably don't even you know, notice you. So this, I think, demonstrates a true harmony between humans and nature where both can thrive side by side. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that this place is saline and uh, not good for agriculture and planting, not mm -hmm. even good for animals. So I figured that people there, local people, probably don't usually go there quite often. No. But now with the establishment of the power plant, I mean, there's somehow a connection between a land that is not really uh, viable to human beings and then people nearby. So there's connection and making use of the resources that's available in the region immediately. I mean, that's a very fun um, pattern and business model that we're looking at. And Lee, you traveled to a energy storage research center. I mean, what's your finding there? Yes, actually, I went to the specifically source network load storage integration demonstration project, which is part of this project in Olanchub. And this is really a, a test base, and researchers there are really uh, researching on various energy storage technologies and it's such a scientific trip i would say uh, somehow i feel like cram a lot of physics knowledge all at once but still i was still fascinated by you know how many kinds of how many types of energy storage technologies they're currently studying there are many types there are many types and uh, in that test base currently there are six types of energy storage technologies being studied and according to the researchers at the site he told me 
Um, they are planning to just expand their factory, their test base, and which in the end will just uh, add more energy storage technology researchers. And especially, you know, as Yushun said, and also as Lemming said, I think Inner Mongolia and especially Wollongong is a place endowed with rich natural resources in terms of clean right. energy. Yet, you know, that's why this place also needs some research on energy storage because we know that wind power and solar power, of course, they are very environmentally friendly, yet they are not that stable compared to conventional mm. or traditional uh, power uh, system. Yet energy storage can really come into play in this area, which I think we'll just uh, come back to this topic later and mm -hmm. give detailed explanation about this. And uh, at this research space, they are really incorporating with all like researchers from top universities across China. They are inviting researchers from universities like Tsinghua, like North China, Electric Power University and Tianjin University to really work on the most cutting edge energy storage technologies. In the mm -hmm. meantime, they have to make sure uh, these technologies are not only being able to uh, apply in reality, more importantly, to be applied in a safe way, in a safe approach, which is kind of important in terms of, you know, promoting green energy system on a larger scale across mm -hmm. China. Mm -hmm. And you had a chance to talk to people there and, uh, and they explained things to you, right? Yes. Um, actually, I talked to a researcher uh, from the Institute of Science and Technology of China Three Gorges Cooperation. He's actually the person in charge of this test base building like mm -hmm. from scratch. And now we see like a whole set of factories right there. And um, he told me something you know, interesting about this very specific integration system, which kind of sound weird and uh, bizarre for average people person like me who mm -hmm. know nothing about physics. So he explained, you know, something about this system and why it matters to us. And more importantly, you know, we are talking about like a bigger picture. I mean, carbon neutrality and the sustainability goals, right? So what kind of role uh, this system can play in promoting that goals? And more importantly, of course, I invited him to share some of the uh, most cutting edge technologies that are being studied right now. So yeah, we got a Q&A, right? Let's hear this. So, Dr. Su, could you just tell us how does the energy storage technology contribute to China's pursuit of carbon neutrality and also its sustainability goals, in the end benefiting everybody? Well, in 2016, China signed the Paris Agreement, which set a long-term goal of limiting the global average temperature increase to within 2 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial levels. Against this backdrop, President Xi announced China's carbon goal, aiming to build a new type of power system. In this new power system, uh, energy storage technology is a critical element for the safe and stable operation of the new power system, which is essential for everyone's daily life and uh, production, as well as the sustainable development. Moreover, in the new power system, uh, load management shifts from being passive to becoming an active factor in maintaining uh, grid stability. Uh, electricity is a unique commodity that must be produced and consumed in real time. Otherwise, the, uh, the grid could collapse, leading to uh, massive blackouts. In the new power system, Electricity prices will vary uh, based on supply and demand, guiding users' electricity consumption behavior. With a small-scale energy storage station or an electric vehicle, individuals can uh, benefit from cost savings during off-peak hours or even earn some income. These are the advantages that energy storage can bring to us in the future. Mm -hmm. And then what is the current progress, I mean, research progress of Three Gorges Cooperation's energy storage technology research in Wallenchup? And more importantly, what types of energy storage technologies are being studied? Uh, we have established a research and development test base for uh, source grade load storage technology in Wallenchup. It serves as a, a battleground for various energy storage technologies. 
The initial demonstrations include uh, seven forms of energy storage, like compressed air energy storage, flywheel energy storage, liquid flow batteries, solid man batteries, etc. And all of these are iconic. For example, the solid state battery is the first megawatt scale application, and uh, the solid mine battery achieved a single module control for the first time. Currently, these technologies are still in the demonstration and the verification stage. Compressed air energy storage and all vanadium flow batteries are growing at a relatively fast pace due to their uh, low electricity generation costs. Also, they are uh, more safer than lithium-ion batteries. Mm -hmm. So what are the practical application scenarios of this source-grade load storage integration system? It's worth noting that source-grade load storage integration is an implement approach rather than a single technology. It needs time, it needs a process, gradually extends from small areas to larger regions. In Wulanchab, China 3 Gardens Corporation has firstly explored uh, source-grade load storage integration at the industrial park level and station level. Uh, in the future, this scope will expand gradually to county, city, or even province levels. Currently, it is premature to implement such large-scale integration. We should uh, prepare a lot like a massive number of uh, energy storage facilities, well-designed policy mechanisms, and uh, mature business models. But it's sure that this uh, is the direction for future development. So then when talking about further developing this sector, what are some major challenges do you think facing the energy storage industry right now? And what do we need to do to further develop this sector? Uh, energy storage technology plays a crucial role in this integrated system. And actually there are four uh, key questions we should answer. Well, which kind of uh, energy storage should we choose? and uh, how much energy storage should we build, and uh, how to operate these storage systems, and uh, how to make it profitable. But personally, these are superficial problems. The key question behind these problems are the policy mechanism. A well-designed policy mechanism is foundation to answer all these questions. There we go. That was uh, Su Yibo, researcher at the Institute of Science and Technology of China, Three Gorges Corporation, talking to Li Yi and explaining things about what they do over there in, in Mongolia and Wulan Chapu. So um, there are a couple of things to take away here. And number one is he talked about a new power system. I mean, what does he even mean by that? I mean, there's some mm -hmm. explanation as to what this system hopes to achieve, um, but uh, how we do understand this concept. Yes, he actually talks a lot about this source-grade load storage integration system. In Chinese, we call it as Yuan Wang He Chu. Mm -hmm. As he explained, this basically is a system that tries to integrate several key elements. When we operate an electricity system, first one source, it refers to power generation side. And second one Including is the one that you uh, shouldn't went... Yes, exactly. So solar power generation. Yes, yes, that's actually the supply side. And yeah, then, that's all connected. Yes, they're all connected. And then, uh, you know, after um, the supply side generates somehow power through various measures, we need really a network to connect. And so that's why the second element is really great, power grade. And the third one is load, of course, and the, the last one is storage. I mean, load just refers to the demand side or the user side, like either the households or factories or business buildings who are in need of certain electricity. So, you know, this system is trying to integrate these elements all at once because, you know, actually, do you know how is the traditional electricity system work? That's a quick test for you, Yushen. <laughs> Well, you generate electricity and yes. you store it and you mm -hmm. give it to, oh, you, you need some kind of converter yes. to store it. And then you transfer it to all of the citizens that, you, that need a utility. Exactly. That's a very smart explanation <laughs> in a read into this uh, system. That's exactly the traditional 
electricity system works. And more importantly, in the past, the power grid system mainly operates in the mode where the source, I mean, the supply side follows the load side, which is the the user side. Mm. So that means, um, say, Yushun, you are a user of this electricity, say you are a household and I'm the supply side. So how much uh, electricity you need for your apartment, then as a supply side, I will just give you that amount. So that is the mm. logic behind this traditional electricity grid system. But there's a problem in yes. the sense that you don't know how much power Yushun would use in his own apartment. I mean, you never know that he's bought a new computer or big vacuum cleaner, I mean, which all of them are energy eaters. And then when he turns on the AC, there's an extra demand for electricity. If Li Yi, you as a supplier don't know what's going on on the consumer end, then there's a chance of you not giving them enough. And then that could lead to blackouts, as uh, Sui Bo mentioned earlier. Exactly. I think, I think that's probably why there are some different strategies and policies on the electricity billing, right? Because mm -hmm. in my hometown, we pay for the electricity bill after we use all of this electricity previous month. But in Beijing, I think it, you need to buy your electricity first before you use the electricity. So I think maybe according to, you know, different situation of the electricity storage, different cities or different regions will have different policies. That's a very interesting observation. Yes, uh, cities do vary in terms of how uh, their residents pay for their ele electricity bills and also their gas bills. But mm. uh, a lot of it has to do with the city's uh, policy to encourage people to pay for the bills. In, in some cases, when people don't want to pay for their gas bills and, and the uh, uh, the companies are still obliged to supply them with the resources they need. So this doesn't necessarily have to do with the way the power system is managed, but uh, that's a very interesting observation. Exactly. But I think we're talking about like two different sides of this electricity system because mm -hmm. the fluctuating paying bill policy you should mention is one of the measures to ensure a more stable power system, yet for the supply side, it's not really sufficient because you can't really rely on the good consciousness uh, or awareness of citizens. Say, if you should, you are very aware of this electricity system and you would have the conscience to really use electricity when the bill or when the price is kind of low. So that is in line with the very good design at the initial point. However, for some people, they may not really care about the cost. So that could not really help to solve the problem for the supply side because as Lamming mentioned for the supply side they can never anticipate which uh, when is the peak season or mm. when is the lowest season for the usage of electricity so for them they have to get good they cannot I think anticipation is quite doable right now I mean that's one way to to go forward in terms of improving the power system I mean uh, through some kind of uh, data collection and data analysis mechanisms one and the power plants and also the system management can somehow adjust the production of energy. But uh, again, that, that's not the whole story. I mean, the, mm. the other part of the story is, I mean, when we talk about new energy being generated, especially solar and, and wind, I mean, these are uh, particularly um, dependent on the kind of resources available in real time. I mean, if there's no wind, if there's no sun out there i mean there's no power generation but when there's a need for energy at that point then we have a problem and that's the opportunity for energy storage exactly i think that's the significance of promoting this kind of energy storage technology in places like inner mongolia because as you said i mean winter wind and solar power generation they can be hugely affected by uncertain weather conditions. Right. So this kind of energy storage technology or system just plays a role as a huge power bank mm. uh, where they can really store energy when there's extra energy and then release energy when the user side is in need of that energy. So that in the end could just help to create a more stable, we say electricity system um, or a more stable power grid. So basically to put it simple, I think a, a very complaint a very plain and a common saying could just explain why we're going to develop this kind of energy storage technology is that you have to you always have to save for the rainy days. 
So mm. that's the basic logic behind, uh, if we're going to put it simple. So at this research base of uh, three gorgeous cooperation, the researchers just uh, shared with me some of the uh, most cutting-edge energy storage technology. And I think more importantly is that there, I surprisingly find that the history of energy storage technology is pretty long. I mean, could you just guess how long is it? A few hundred years, a few decades? Not really. Actually, it just spans over thousands of years. That's、What? quite amazing. How can they store it? Did they have batteries, batteries back then? Yeah. That's a very good question. Actually, I think ancient people they have also been working really hard to store energy because,、mm -hmm. according to this researcher, the oldest battery was discovered in the year. 248 BC. Wow! So that's like 2,000、oh. years ago. Wait, wait, wait! 2,000 years—that sounds like a really long story.、Uh, we're going into a break now. I mean, let's save it for the second half. And also coming up in the second half of the show, I'm going to share my、uh, first-hand observation as a wind turbine manufacturer. And、uh, I will leave a question before we go off, and that is: Can you guess how much energy the wind turbine can produce with just one turn of the blade on there? We'll come back after this short break. The strong wind was howling and whistling. He was the first Chinese citizen to graduate from Yale University in the mid 19th century. I was born on the 17th of November. She had prominent features. Three of us were old enough to lend a helping hand. He navigated between two vastly different cultures and moved further to realize his dream and promote understanding between the people of China and the United States. Ye Mingxing was a native of Hanyang. I realized no danger. China is really awakening. Come and join us in discovering the incredible journey of Yong Wang in his autobiography, My Life in China and America. Check out the audible stories on radio.cgtn.com and all major podcast platforms. Just search for the podcast Books and Beyond and find My Life in China and America. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. You're listening to Roundtable. I'm Lai Ming. Li Yi, Yushun, and I are still traveling in Inner Mongolia, and this time we、uh, took the chance to look at the latest developments in new energy industry. And、uh, before the break, Li Yi was just sharing with us her observation at a power storage research center, and、uh, we sort of left at the long history of power storage. And Li Yi, could you humor us with、uh, your finding here? Yes, actually, you know,、um, I was really amazed by the history of energy storage technology because at the institute there is a huge clock decoration hanging on the wall of their research building, and they are really taking it as a icon or a logo、uh, of their company or the research they are doing on the storage. Uh, I mean, energy storage technology, and I asked why. You know, why you are designing a clock to showing this history? Because, according to my you know very basic understanding、There's、of、no、this technology,、uh, not really no history, but I think it's really a modern and you know. A modern technology. I don't really think a history could be like a、right. keyword in this sector, right? So he told me that that is because the history of this energy technology is really long. Just a guess. It. I mean, you shouldn't. How long could it be? A、Just、few a, decades. I mean,、yeah. cars have been running、years. on batteries. Not really. Not really. Actually, he told me. Well. Well, actually,、um, they were really interesting、uh, design of this clock, and on the clock, the numbers were replaced by different symbolic years during which major breakthrough of energy storage technology happened, and the starting point is two hundred and forty-eight BC. Two hundred and forty-eight BC. Yes.、What? Yes. That's more than two thousand years ago. Yes, actually, that's the year. When the oldest battery was discovered,、And、how can they store the electricity? That's a very good question. Were、well, they aware of electricity in existence? Well, actually, that battery I don't think is in the shape or in any sense related to or similar to the battery we have right now. I mean, in a modern time, the name of this battery is really Baghdad battery, and the appearance is basically a clay jar.、Mm -hmm. Yet inside this jar is really unusual because There is a stopper made of asphalt, and sticking through this 
asphalt is an iron rod. Mm, so okay. there's iron inside. So researchers and archaeologists just guess that this might be a very early attempt for ancient people to research and to discover how they could just take control of their own energy. And of course, this device could only produce one or two volts of electricity. And uh, actually, to date, not all scientists accept it as a source of energy or a battery in any sense. But still, I think that just tells a very interesting uh, story of uh, how people have been craving for grasping this kind of energy storage technology. Yeah, I also heard that. That kind of a myth that before lithium, people、mm -hmm. store electricity in iron.、Mm -hmm. Another interesting point that、uh, Suibo mentions、uh, during your interview with him is a load management method or、uh, ideology shifting from passive to active. So,、uh, in the past, when all we could do was to consume whatever energy that's being created in real time. But now,、um, with、uh, the new thinking and new technologies available, people can think of and design a way to, like we mentioned earlier, analyze and study the power needs and、mm -hmm. energy needs、mm -hmm. of residents and businesses, and then perhaps、uh, adjust the production of energy accordingly. I mean, that's going from passive to active, and that's very interesting. But He also mentioned something about a mechanism for management of the power system, and and did you get a chance to ask him on this? No, that's very interesting finding there.、Uh, Li Yi talking to Doctor Su Yibo about the history of power storage. In his opinion, I mean, this is really eye-opening. But then again, I'm not sure that、uh, so-called Baghdad battery is safe and effective in power storage. When we are talking about the latest technology in power storage. It's really important to think about safety as well, because when you think about power storage on such a large scale, as to coordinate the resources、uh, throughout a region or a province or a country, we are talking about a massive amount of energy. And is there any ways for us to be sure that、uh, it's safe to live next to a facility like that? Yes, I think to make sure that energy is stored in a safe way is kind of a key. Topic they are studying right now because although we are trying to push the limits of all kinds of energy storage technologies, yet safety is always the top priority.、Mm -hmm. So that's why Dr. Su also shared with me several measures they are adopting or researching on to guarantee the safety of this, you know, battery or other devices. And according to him, actually. There could be various measures based on different energy storage technologies.、Okay. For example, for electrochemical energy storage, the major risk would be thermal runaway,、mm -hmm. and it basically refers to situations where there is like an increase in temperature, and that just changes the conditions in a way that could just cause a further increase in temperature, and, and that perhaps an explosion. Yes, and that could just lead to a destructive result. And I think across the world, this is like a key issue being studied right now. So for this type of energy storage technology, according to Dr. Su, it's really essential to enhance the quality of the battery cells. And meantime, they are also implementing several measures to be like a supplementary measures. For example, they are equipping. Switches to different individual modules to ensure that if any single module encounters an say an issue or、um, an emergency, this switch could just immediately help this module to disconnect、mm, to other seems, modules. Right, that seems to be the technology that electric car makers are adopting. I mean, they're using、uh, slices and slices of batteries coming together to create、uh, the drive that is needed to power a car. But、uh, it is also a method to avoid having one single unit of battery going awry and then frying all the batteries all together and and really incapacitating the the entire vehicle. So that's quite quite smart, in fact. Exactly, that is a major approach to really prevent any kind of potential or widespread. Thermal runaway or other risk. In meantime, for another type of energy storage technology, they're studying right here in research base in Wollongong. It's called flywheel. Flywheel.、Uh, yes, flywheel energy storage. And、uh, 
according to my very basic physics knowledge, it could be quite uh, mechanical compared to other like uh, chemical energy storage technology. So according to Dr. Su, um, the major safety risk of this kind of flywheel energy storage technology is that flywheel could disintegrate. And so oh. that's why they are really, you know, adding some like protective casing made of carbon fiber outside to make sure that the flywheel body will not really disintegrate or to cause some potential hazard to uh, the environment, to the whole device or to people standing around. And in the end, to safeguard the experiment and also the application in the future. So these are some safety measures Dr. Su has shared with me. And of course, temperature control is or has been a major approach to ensure the safety. I mean, at that research base, actually, they're placing different devices uh, of different energy storage technology in different locations um, because some of those mm -hmm. technology are demanding in terms of temperature. And uh, so they just decide to put it inside. And then for some other technologies, they just put that devices outside. So these are uh, several measures, I would say, to make sure that we are adopting and also researching on this technology in a safe way. This is really eye-opening. I mean, a trip to the research base uh, has enabled us to find out about the so many types of uh, power storage technologies that human beings are trying to explore. Fly, flying wheel, flying wheels, and then mm -hmm. air pressure, and then yes. leaking our batteries. Um, when we talk about safety, and we don't just mean the safety of the system and safety of human beings around it, but also the safety of the technology that's being used. And in fact, to in a more broad view, if we talk about whether this technology is sustainable, we also talk about whether the critical resources are available, always available for this technology to be introduced on a massive scale. And on this, uh, Dr. Suibo also um, uh, discussed some more in detail. Yes, um, I think as we've discussed, Lithium battery is still one of the most commonly used battery or energy for storage now, yeah. for now. Yet, according to uh, Dr. Su, especially in China, we don't really have enough or very promising lithium resources because, of course, it's, first of all, it's non-renewable. It's called rare earth for a good reason. I mean, it's rare. Yes, and uh, so far, China's dependence on foreign lithium resources has reached 85%. 85 percent. Mm -hmm. Yes, and uh, they are really limited inside, you know, this country. And uh, according to Dr. Su, those lithium resources are mainly distributed in provinces such as Jiangxi, Sichuan, Qinghai. However, first of all, the total quantity of mines in these regions are not really sufficient. And meantime, these regions are faced with different challenges. For example, in Jiangxi, the quantity of mines is not abundant. And the lithium mining in Sichuan is also challenging because of the mine locations in remote areas with high altitude and also a lack of infrastructure there. So mining presents a unique difficulty in some different in different topography, and that is really uh, reasonable. Then, and but the issue is, I mean, the the amount of rare earth and and lithium lithium really is limited throughout the world. I mean, that's. They're called, like I said earlier, they're called rare earth for a good reason. I mean, they're not in very abundant supply anywhere. But then, um, we, if we were to pursue this path of technology progress, I mean, there's there are ways that we can work around it. For instance, import and export, and that's one channel to do it. And then, uh, recycle is a very important way to make sure that the resources that we put in in making these batteries are being recycled and reused again. Um, many influential companies in this country, including uh, uh, major rare earth and uh, lithium-ion battery companies in, in Jiangxi province, my hometown, have started their own recycle business. Mm -hmm. And so uh, right now there's a lot of room uh, for development in this regard because even though we have spent uh, more than a decade building electric vehicles in this country, we have not yet developed a very mature recycle system. And once we do have a reasonable and viable ways and solution to recycle these very valuable resources, then perhaps we could achieve some kind of uh, balance in supply and demand. 
And um, well, that's that's very interesting finding there, Li, at uh, the research base about uh, power storage. Moving on, um, I had a chance to go to a wind turbine manufacturer uh, in Wulanchapu, and um, before we came here, we learned that uh, Wulanchapu is the place where there's a lot of uh, wind power and a lot of wind energy companies, and uh, there's the biggest wind turbine blaze being manufactured here and so when we actually go to the factory uh, we were surprised to find uh, the blaze lying on the road mm-hmm. yes, they're yes. so huge we we drove by and we we stared at the blaze for seconds non-stop and mm-hmm. that's just how long it is and can you take a wild guess how long these blaze are Yushun? How long the blaze are? Yeah. Um, I saw a video of Li Yi took b- uh, before. Yes, they you were on the car and mm-hmm. uh, going through like the road, going through the road, yeah. and after a couple of seconds, that you can still see. What was you, that? You still can't see the tip yeah. of the blade. Yeah. Yes, uh, I think that video just uh, last for. Thirty seconds, I would say, wow. for one single uh, blade, uh, which I shoot along the road because they are placing the blades at the road size, and it's it's really amazing. But I guess there's uh, like how long? Uh, Fifty meters. Fifty Nine, meters. Eighty-nine. Wow. Eighty-nine, and that's not the longest they are making here. That's huge. And that's re- that's really huge. I mean, they measure eighty-nine meters long and uh, twenty-two tons in weight and so uh, really impressive i went to the factory floor in which these things are being made um, and really the guy there told me that uh, it's kind of rocket science but it's mm-hmm. also labor intensive mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. rocket science in the sense that you have to consider um, the structure and the material and also aerodynamics when you're making and designing these uh, blades but it is also labor intensive in the sense that uh, a lot of the manufacturing process in base involves the laying of uh, fiberglass mm. on the on the mold, mm. and this really takes time because you're looking at a vast mold where yes. people would. It, it's kind of like a riverbed. Mm. People would just simply walk on there, and then layers of layers of fiberglass, sometimes uh, forty layers in total. And then when the layers are really in place, they will uh, pumping the resin in some way, a very rocket science way. And then each process would take six hours, around six hours. So the laying of the fiberglass and then waiting for it to dry and then pumping the resin and then piecing two parts together, two giant parts. Imagine 89 meters long and really huge. And the thing has to be lifted and then pieced together. And then uh, the next step is um, uh, some more adjustment oh, to so you, make it work. What you're saying is the inside of all of these blades. The inside, I mean, wow, it's made so in, a, in a huge mold, hundreds of meters long. A huge factory floor. So I'm, so I'm really wondering, um, does the size of this blade relate to or affect the wind power they are really generating? It generate does. Right it does. Mm. it does. I mean, the bigger the blade, the the more energy it can create. Of course, when it's placed in the right spot. Mm. One very important aspect of it is, uh, you have to place the blade at the right spot. And the reason why I call it rocket science is because the researchers and the the designers will have to uh, go to the same spot, for instance, uh, the valley or or the shore coastal mm. region, to calculate and study the flow of wind. Yes, throughout the season, sometimes they spend years studying the weather uh, data at that particular spot to work out a design for the wind blades for mm. the wind turbine blades, and then they will have to. Design the wind blade accordingly, and then manufacture them, and have them transported uh, to the right spot. So that's why how they make the decision, you know, to decide how long or the exact length of the display. Yes, right? yes. Mm. Um, different spots and different wind conditions require different blades mm. and different uh, wind turbines, and and so that's the science behind it. Another thing is we we did raise a question before the end of the first half, and that is mm-hmm. um, how much power can these wind turbines generate, and can you take a wild guess? Just how much energy does one turn of the blade can uh, generate? Of course, they vary from from blade to blade, but let's let's take a wild guess. I'm not really sure. <laughs> I see you cheating. You're looking at your laptop. <laughs> I'm not really sure because I don't really know the the right answer to be honest. Uh, but I guess a lot. A lot. That's all I can say. A lot. You should. 
I I think I had an idea、mm-hmm. about the, how much electricity that it can generate because I know how much electricity one solar panel will generate. Okay, that was.、Uh, You do realize they're based on different technologies. Yeah, so that that would be different. I know. So, but I know that the efficiency of、um, the wind power is so much better than the solar panels. So,、mm-hmm. um, and as far as I know, one solar panel can generate about one point five kilowatt hour per day. Wow, that's that's really not a, not much. <laughs> <laughs> compared, <laughs> compared to the wind turbines, we we did the math, although quite general,、uh, with the guy at the manufacturing floor. It turns out that just one turn of the blade, meaning about twelve seconds,、mm-hmm. can generate about fifteen kilowatt hours of electricity. So that's、Whoa. enough. That's enough to charge your smartphone seven hundred and fifty times. Wow, that's really a lot. Because、mm-hmm. I don't really have very. You don't、um, really have seven hundred and fifty smartphones. <laughs> Not really, because、um, meantime I'm really curious how many turns could it just produce. Five turns,、day? one minute. Five turns, one minute.、Mm-hmm. So that means that's that's not how the math is done. We did the math the other way around. I mean, they they do、mm-hmm. have a caliber as to how many electricity they can generate by the hour. Oh. And that's that's how they do the math. But、mm-hmm. we we did it the other way around for、yes. in order so you know what. Kind of power they're creating.、Oh, of course,、uh, that's more vivid, actually. Yeah.、Mm-hmm. Right. So,、um, yeah. And, so I, and I heard that like one household consumes around two to three kilowatt hours of electricity per day. So that's、uh, a huge. Before、amount. you turn on the AC in, in summertime, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Right. So your refrigerator, your your water boilers, they take electricity. They consume electricity, of course. But、uh, things will go exponentially larger if you turn on the AC in summertime, which is why it's really important to introduce the power storage、uh, technology. The guy that、mm. I talked to also mentioned、uh, power storage. He's saying that、uh, with the abundant resources, wind energy resources in Wulanchabu, the company sees a lot of potential to expand their business in、mm. the region. In but, what way? But they do hope to、uh, couple this with the development of power storage, so the excess energy、mm. being created. Don't go wasted.、Uh, mm. All right. So I think that's also one point that Dr. Su shared with me because the reason why we are developing this energy storage technology is also, you know, to you know help to power the development of green energy、mm-hmm. development, and with that, maybe as a supplementary. Element and maybe in the future, like energy storage, could just become like an independent sector. Yet now it's still widely used as a supplementary role in terms of building the this green energy development. That's exactly the same with、uh, the recycling of lithium-ion batteries. Yes, I mean, it's、mm-hmm. when we are pursuing development at this stage with this. Uh, all eyes are on the mining and the using of into、uh, into making them into batteries that could、uh, power your smartphones, your cars, your electric scooters, and and such. But if we were to look in the long term, if if we wanted to be sustainable, then we look at other factors that could、uh, make the system, the whole system, more effective. And、um, another question, quick question for you guys, and that is. Given the size of these wind turbines, I'm I'm sure you've seen them on the road.、Mm. They are all the more impressive when you see them on the road as、mm. compared to、uh, when you see them in the distance. So, given the size of these wind turbine blades, how long do you think it takes for the company to finish one blade? You said previously in the. Six hour to do the do the laying of laying the fiberglass, and then six hours for it to dry, and then yeah. And I think I, I un- unconsciously un- <laughs> gave it away. I accidentally gave it away, but if、That. only you can do the math correct. Give it a shot. Um. I would say two weeks. Two weeks. Nice guess. I mean, they started when they when they started the company. They they spent a whole week. Making one blade,、mm-hmm. but、uh, over time, as they improve the procedure and they improve the techniques, they they can now finish one blade in twenty four hours. Twenty four、wow. hours.、Mm-hmm. That's really quick. And they have four、uh, factory floors working at the same time, so this company can produce four blades in twenty four hours every day. And if we do the calculation right, that four blades produced within twenty four hours could just、uh, help to. Recharge your phone millions of times. <laughs> yes, yes. 
that's very good math. Excellent. Good job. <laughs> good job. And uh, the factory can now produce a, about 1,200 blades throughout the year. Still, given that capacity, they're, they're still getting orders that they can handle. And as such, they are still thinking about expanding and building more factory floors. This goes to show how hot it is when it comes to wind turbine and wind energy. At least in this part of the country, in Wulan Chabu, in, uh, in Mongolia, the so-called wind energy capital of the country. China has set the goal to peak its carbon emission by 2030 and achieve carbon neutrality by 2060. And so far, we've made some progress in this giant endeavor. Hmm. According to public data compared to 2005, in 2019, China's carbon dioxide emissions per unit of GDP decreased by 48%, resulting in a reduction of approximately 5.6 billion tons of carbon dioxide emissions. And during the same period, GDP grew more than four times, leading to the lifting of 95% of the population out of poverty. So we can see that reaching the carbon neutrality goals has a great significance to our or even all the citizens of the global village's daily life. In other words, pursuit of carbon neutrality is not going to severely dampen the economic growth, but in fact might even provide some extra drive for the economy to go forward. Yes. And there's regional disparity in this as well. I mean, China is a big country. There are different circumstances in, in different parts of the country. As such, one might expect the, the parts and different regions to have a their own unique path to achieving carbon neutrality. Yes, because different regions in China, they are really having different natural resources and, of course, population, industries, different economic development situation. So that could all affect the time when they could achieve carbon peak. For example, in China, it's estimated that the eastern, the middle part, and the southwest part could just reach carbon peak a little earlier, and then it's the northeastern part, and of course, the last is the northwestern part of China. And so, as you said, to really coordinate all those different natural resources and to make sure that all the regions can really make progress in terms of achieving carbon peak and in the end, carbon neutrality, there could be different paths. For example, to coordinate Natural resources is one major approach. We know that the western part of China is endowed with natural solar power, wind power, and water power. So they could just transfer resources, extra resources in this region to, say, region like eastern part. Say we have more population and industries. Yes, we right. still suffer from a lack of those natural resources. Mm -hmm. And then another way to do it is to do it through different stages. For instance, in Wulan Chapu, they're experimenting with uh, carbon neutral industrial parks, and then perhaps going forward as we uh, edge closer to the to the date of carbon peak and carbon neutrality, we could experiment with, for instance, a whole city carbon neutrality. And so, beginning with uh, different hotspots, we can perhaps see very successful examples that we can further introduce to other parts of the country and therefore achieve an overall carbon neutrality across the nation. And that's all the time we have for this uh, special program as we wrap up our visit in Wulan Chavu in central Inner Mongolia. We hope we get more chances to visit different parts of the country and give you our first-hand observation of what's going on in the country. And uh, Roundtable will continue presenting you with our unique perspective and hope you stay with us next time. And thank you for listening.